Hmm, thank you, Becky. What beautiful words of truth to conclude this study of Hebrews. All I have is Christ. Well, my name is Tana Henry, and it is a privilege to be with each one of you this morning as we do remember together what the Lord has taught us in this study of Hebrews, all that we have learned about this Jesus, all we have considered, the truths that this Hebrews author penned then for those that he dearly loved and now for those that have been called by Christ. So as we gathered last September, um, we had no idea what was coming, right? In our individual lives, in our corporate gathering here, in your discussion groups, so much life has happened. <clears throat> in the world around us, we've experienced um, trials, war, tragedies in our personal lives. <clears throat> I'm certain we've endured the same. Trials, challenges, sufferings, victories, points of rejoicing, points of grieving. But in it all, we've had the opportunity to consider Christ. We have had the opportunity to learn together and to grow in our understanding and knowledge of this one who is our prophet, priest, and king. So as we anticipate the final words together, it seems appropriate that we, that we do remember, that we look back on what we have learned through this author of Hebrews from the very heart of God to them, to us, to all those who would come to faith now and forever. So let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are so thankful to be called by you, to be known and loved by you. For indeed, you did look upon our helpless state and led us to the cross. We are able to behold your love displayed in Christ who suffered in our place. You, Jesus, bore the wrath that was reserved for me, for us. And now all we know is grace. So hallelujah, all we have is Christ. In your name, amen. So as we've studied and read in Hebrews, we've encountered this community of Christians who's not much different than us. They are dealing with the stuff of life, right? The trials, um, the suffering. And they have called, they've been called by this Hebrews author to hold fast to their confession of faith, to hold fast and all that entails. We've learned what type of confession the author had in mind and how it was to be personally and communally lived out. That's been instructive for us. And most importantly, we have learned so much about Jesus. Deeply rooted in this sermon letter is a sense of urgency. And we, too, exist in that same state of urgency. We suffer from the effects of sin, of evil in the world, of war, of spiritual depravity, of lack of community. We are in a full-fledged battle against the schemes of the enemy, the ways of the world, and the exaltation of self. So our study of Hebrews should have helped us understand the pressing needs of that generation and really answer the call of our very own generation now. 
Understanding how God equipped them strengthens us, doesn't it? To be able to learn from them and learn how God equipped them and encouraged them to hold fast is instructive for us and can be preparatory in this present generation. Our prayer penned in the opening pages of our study guide. I'd like to revisit that. Our prayer is that studying Hebrews would spur us all to consider and believe in Jesus Christ. May faith and hope in Christ, the great high priest seated at the right hand of God, encourage us to seek, serve, and worship him in every area of life. That was our prayer at the beginning. So what have we considered about Christ? What have we learned about him, about Jesus, as we've considered the truths penned by this author? Well, I'd like to propose that we remember by way of this, this list that was handed to you this morning with your lecture notes. Jesus in our study of Hebrews. All we have learned about him, who he is, and what he has done. And I have asked your um, wonderful discussion group leaders to lift their voices this morning in praise of Jesus and to recite these titles and all he has done to help us remember together. They'll do that for us now. Son of God, heir of all things, creator of the world, radiance of God's glory, exact imprint of God's nature, upholder of the universe, purifier of our sins, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, superior and most excellent name, begotten, firstborn, worshipful, God, Eternal, just, righteous, anointed with oil of gladness, Lord, immutable, victor, crowned with glory and honor, sufferer and taster of death, founder of salvation, sanctifier, brother, destroyer of the devil, deliverer, Merciful and faithful high priest, propitiator of sins, sufferer of temptations, Jesus, apostle and high priest of our confession, worthy of more glory than Moses, Christ, Messiah, anointed one, great high priest, appointed by God, priest forever. Source of eternal salvation, forerunner, descendant from Judah, guarantor of a better covenant, savior to the uttermost, intercessor, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, minister, merciful, redeemer, offering, Mediator of a new covenant. Once for all. Sacrifice. Jesus Christ. Perfecter. Faithful. Founder and perfecter of our faith. Helper. 
same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Hmm. What a beautiful reminder. So what are you thinking about Jesus? Hearing all of those names and offices and all that he has done and accomplished, it's all for you. It's all for me. So what are you thinking about? What are you considering when you hear that list? Is there one that is particular, uh, a particular encouragement to you? One that he has revealed himself more fully to you? So our title for this study was Consider Christ. And the definition of consider is to think carefully about something, typically before making a decision. To think about and be drawn toward a course of action. Because, friends, the knowledge of Jesus and the gospel demands a response. I was thinking about this idea of considering and how we can live so comfortably there. I'm considering this, I'm considering that, I'm thinking about this. But if no action is taken, then the act of considering is really void of significance. It holds no lasting value. The considering, the pondering, the thinking on must compel us to something. In this case, to believe in Christ and follow him. So our prayer has been that you have considered Christ well that you have studied him and his ways, and you have come to know him and to believe in him. Remember his words to his disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's his call to all of us, because the whole call of faith is an active working out of that which has been worked in by the power of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to transport us from this word consider today to two new words, come and choose, come and choose. As we reflect on this letter um, to the Hebrews, we often encounter the exhortations and warnings, the admonitions and warnings, serve to instruct his readers then and us now in the pursuit of lives that are not about just considering, but about coming to Christ and choosing him. How often this writer of Hebrews says, come. And how often we see the word in all of scripture, come. Verses that Jesus spoke himself in Matthew when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come. And the prophet Isaiah penned these words, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And then in Revelation, we have this, anticipation of the words that are coming there. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. 
And let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires, take the water of life without price. So he invites us not to just consider, but to come to him. You remember those words that we studied in Hebrews, come boldly to the throne of grace in our time of need. So we've been invited and urged to come to Jesus, come to the eternal hope found only in him. Have you done that? Because we do it once, and then we keep doing it, don't we? And then after receiving the invitation, we must choose. The definition of choose is deciding from among a range of options or making a deliberate decision. After this considering, pondering, pondering, learning, and even coming, I pray we now choose. Receiving faith by grace alone should stir in us the desire to live fully for Christ, choosing to follow, choosing to surrender, choosing to obey, choosing to honor and glorify. In Deuteronomy, we read these words, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. Choose life. Hold fast to Christ. So the Lord Jesus has been the great theme of Hebrews. But if we could summarize it in one phrase, what would it be? Jesus is better, right? Better promises, better covenant, better sacrifices, better, better, better. It was written to Jewish believers, and it has sought to show them the superiority of Jesus, the sufficiency and the superiority of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And it was over these old covenant rituals and sacrifices and ceremonies that they had been so attached to. But all of the things that they have, had grown to understand and seek after really found their fulfillment in Christ. These believers are encouraged to draw near to God in full assurance, just as we are. And as we've seen throughout our study, this was a much-needed exhortation for them. Then several times through the letter, the practical call has been to go forward in their faith, to hold fast, to not look back to bear up faithfully under their sufferings and their afflictions for Christ while they faithfully and eagerly anticipated what was coming, the heavenly country which is promised. So by way of review, Hebrew has two primary purposes, to encourage and exhort Christians to endure and hold fast. And then the second is to warn them not to abandon their faith in Christ. The warning passages appear throughout the book, and they have, if you recall, that crescendo effect, increasing in severity and urgency. The author consistently encourages faithfulness, sound doctrine, and love. He does so by carefully teaching the Old Testament in light of the revelation in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment, which proves then the superiority and sufficiency of Christ. 
So the teaching and the exhortation flow through the whole letter. If we remove the exhortations, the letter would be one log argument about Christ's glory and greatness. The exhortations are firmly planted to make sure the gospel hits the readers. This is teaching for transformation. It's not just considering, but coming and choosing. So just as these heroes of faith that we read about in chapter 11, do you remember that heroes of faith? By faith, Abel. By faith, Abraham. And Enoch. And Sarah. And Noah. The warnings fit into the argument, and Hebrews holds up Christ as the object of that faith. For them and for us. Christ is the object. By faith. And this Hebrew author then exhorts us to keep trusting him. The warnings press home the message by demonstrating the necessity of choosing to trust Christ. So there's an ongoing practical value here for us. We, just as those readers of old, journey in a land that is not our final home. This is not all there is. We are living in this life, in the here and now, and waiting for the not yet. A life that is often wrought with hardship, trials, and suffering. But we, as they did, must choose to make a commitment to go forward in the tide, against the tide of human pressure and against these trials and to hold fast to Christ. Because we know that the fulfillment of all God's promises find their yes in him. And we will one day soon, like those faithful saints, go before, have gone before us. We will go in faith. And we will see the reward. What might be said of you? Because we read the stories of by Noah, or by faith Noah, by faith Enoch, and we read their stories. So what might be said of you? By faith, Karen. By faith, Cody. By faith, Kathy. By faith, Bev. And what will your story be? Let's take a minute and recite our scripture memory as we consider those great, that great cloud of witnesses and this call to faith. So Susie's projecting it, and let's stand and recite that together. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sing, which shows, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hmm. You may be seated. Thank you. Great words of truth. So we've remembered. We've remembered. We've considered and we've talked about coming and choosing. We have received great theological truths by way of our study in this letter. And now the writer brings it to a close as he pens this benediction. This final appeal. 
And as so often true in New Testament letters, closing words often summarize and apply the great themes in one final section. And benedictions are really important. You know, each Sunday, our teaching pastor, Drew Hunter, who taught us here, closes with a benediction. And one of my husband's um, pet peeves is when that benediction is about to take place, you hear the rustling of papers and, and people begin to move on from the teaching time. They think about what's coming next and they're gathering up their things. But to do so misses the poignant reminder of the truth that comes in that benediction and the charge that is given in that time. So this, just like any oral benediction that is given, is so important for us to sink our teeth into and to really dwell here in these words from the author. So a benediction is a solemn prayer and wish for the blessing and happiness of the recipients. In this case, some scholars have referred to these particular words as a gathering prayer. So let's read it together. Now may the God of peace who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. We hear so much tenderness even in these closing words, don't we? This charge, this exhortation this call to remembrance of the truths that he's gathered up. So I'd like to just break it down into six parts, and they're noted on your uh, handout there. First is the appeal. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. Here the Hebrew author hails God as the source of peace. In one way, I believe he's speaking of the suffering that they've they've encountered due to following Christ and the peace that comes only from God as the source. But I think that he more fully here is referencing the full relational peace that is brought to us through the atoning work of Jesus, reconciling us, redeeming us, restoring us to relationship with God the Father as our Prince of Peace. The writer identifies the God of peace as the one who raised Jesus from the dead, this highlights how the Father is fully satisfied in Christ. And this justification that has come for all who believe in him. And in light of this peace, Jesus is affirmed to us as the great shepherd of the sheep. It was the same shepherd who bore the sins of his own sheep, those sheep who had wandered away, but have now returned to the great shepherd. In our study um, this week, you read several passages about this great shepherd and how he knows them and how he still seeks to bring them into the fold. And we know that sheep are prone to wander and we, like sheep, have gone astray and we are in need of a great shepherd. 
so sacred peace that has been given to us from God through our Savior, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. The second point is the source of peace. The basis of the benediction is found in these words, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is the channel. This is the way, the source. This points us to the new covenant of which Jesus is the mediator, as opposed to the old covenant under Moses to which they were sometimes tempted to return. Hebrews 8.6 tells us he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. This was accomplished through him by means of death. We read in Hebrews, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So also in our lesson 18 today, we were reminded of all the ways Jesus is the source as our great high priest, prophet, priest, and king. And he is now you recall, seated at the right hand of God because it has been finished. He's accomplished for us all the Lord sent him to do, the mediator of this new covenant, the source of our peace. Then we see this petition, the specific blessing that the writer invokes, the God of peace, that he would make you complete in every good work to do his will. The Old Covenant required strict obedience to the letter of the Old Testament law, which always, always resulted in failure and condemnation. But now Jesus has satisfied all the requirements of the letter of the law. When he hung on that cross and he said it is finished and he rose from the dead, he accomplished it all. So now that he is satisfied, the believer in him is now fully free to follow under the leading of the Holy Spirit through grace alone, by faith alone. We are justified in God's sight. You might recall the the teaching that Kathy did early in our year on being justified and sanctified. And remember the promises of the new covenant? We have a new heart. And I will give you a new heart. Replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And I will write my laws on their hearts. And I will remember their sins no more. So he has given us this power through the Holy Spirit that lives within us. That we can abide with Christ. Paul wrote these words in Titus 2 which are a beautiful reminder of this truth. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to us all, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works so that he would make us complete in every good work to do his will that's my prayer for all of you and then the outcome as God's gracious act of his own doing we're told that he is working in you what is well pleasing in his sight 
so we can try to muster up all the strength that is in us and achieve these things and, and follow hard after God. But apart from him, we can do nothing. Our righteousness is as filthy rags to him. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we would walk in them. The new covenant does not mean that the holiness sought through the law under the old covenant is now set aside. Rather, it is God himself who now works in the believer through Jesus to produce this fruit, to produce this life that is pleasing to him. So it's an act of grace that is infused from Christ through us, compelling us to live lives of righteousness and holiness. This call to come and choose. This calls for our participation. But what we do is ultimately based on his working in us what he desires. Just as Kathy taught us last week about the truth bringing forth good works. Let us not confuse those. A right response to the amazing grace we receive is a life of obedience and trust in the one who has given it. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to both will and to do for his own good pleasure. John Piper puts it this way as he reflects on Colossians 2.6. Paul says, as therefore you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so live in him. I love what Piper says here. This is the way we should speak to new believers. You received Jesus in all his offices when you received him for salvation. You did not receive a half Christ. He is prophet, priest, and king, and he is this for you. This is the one you received. Now live in him in a way that befits his offices. Now that we have considered and we've gathered up all these truths, how are we going to live? How are we going to allow this God of grace <clears throat> to work out in us all that he has worked in? The next section is the means. The means by which God produces any good in us or by which any good is produced through us is by his gracious enabling through Christ. In no other way are we found pleasing. In Ephesians 1, 6 states it beautifully, saying we are accepted in the beloved. We are accepted in the beloved. The last section is the doxology and the amen. This is the expression of glory to God. Let it be so. The writer says that all of this is accomplished through Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Never, never will we be able to say that any of this is, this is our own doing, but it is all of him and through him and for him. And the writer closes with the benediction, amen. It is true. Let it be accepted. So what can we learn from the closing of letters like this? 
First, that theology is deeply relational. The letter sermon of Hebrews was complex, but ultimately it was intended to be an anchor in the day-to-day realities of human experience for them and for us. Secondly, the application of Christian principles is an ongoing process. We tend to think of the amen as the conclusion of a church, but really it's just the beginning. It's the starting pistol, the charge to go forth. And finally, that worship and equipping are one in the same. We tend to associate worship with emotion so strongly that we fail to recognize the clear necessity that worship is both the goal and the driving force of mission. Our mission is to live for Jesus with a long view, with an eternal perspective, to spread his love, to reach the unchurched, and to equip others to participate in the life of the kingdom. What beautiful purpose he gives us in our coming and in our choosing. So as we close, I can't help but think about... um, The fact that we all entered those doors last September and we came to study this book, to open the word of God together, to learn from Jesus, to sit at his feet, to learn from one another. And you've traveled back to those discussion groups every week. What do you know to be true of this Jesus? And what are you going to do with that? We've considered lots. We've considered more than we know what to do with. But it really is our prayer that no one leaves today without knowing that you are loved, that you are the beloved and accepted in Christ. And he has great plans for you. I think you recall um, when we gathered in September, we had a family who had experienced a tragic loss, a death, And we were grieving as a body that Wednesday morning. The funeral was to be held here that afternoon. We made some adjustments. And I also shared with you about challenges that we'd had in our own family with my husband's health. And I would be remiss not to testify of God's faithfulness in both of those areas. In that family who he has sustained by the power of his grace through their faith. They are living on. And Jesus is enough. The unthinkable happens. And we're able to exercise, to come to choose, and to exercise the faith that we've been given. And I would also love to give praise to our Savior Jesus for the healing of my husband. He's he's doing great. And um, by faith, We trust him. Sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers the way that we'd like him to. But his plans are so much better than ours. And we wouldn't want to miss what he has to teach us in the process. So I pray that as we have just begun to plumb the theological truths in Hebrews, that we can consider him more fully, but that we continue to press on to know him, to trust him, and to love him more. 
So we're going to close this morning with a song that has become one of my favorites recently uh, by Sidewalk Prophets, Come to the Table. And you'll notice in here it speaks to um, all of us, no matter where we are, where we're coming from, the different experiences, to come to Jesus. So listen and just meditate on the words of the song, the truths that we've learned, what you've considered about Christ, and then you're dismissed. Thank you. We all start on the outside, the outside looking in. This is where grace begins. We were hungry, we were thirsty, with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in. Just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us. He said, come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table.